Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, September 6th. Hope all of you listeners enjoyed a fabulous Labor Day weekend. It's a time of transition. In the calendar, summer turns to fall for students. You're getting ready to go back to school for parents. You're sending your kids off to campus. I know it's never fun for my mom to send my younger brother back off to Penn. Nevertheless, off he goes. However, for us tennis fans, it's always the middle weekend of the U.S. Open. And the 2021 edition of the tournament has provided us so many fantastic matches through the first eight days of play. Day eight, no exception to that rule. Of course, in particular, I would say one of the storylines from the day's play, should all matches be night matches? You look at our two nightcaps on Arthur Ashe Stadium. Jensen Brooksby took a 6-1 set from Novak Djokovic. You listeners know we are going to break down that set. Of course, break down Djokovic's subsequent next three sets of victory, his four-set win over Brooksby in uh, today's matches. want to talk about how Djokovic was able to make that adjustment, what we think about his level moving forward. Obviously, talk a little bit about what Jensen Brooksby was able to accomplish in New York, what he's accomplished this season, where he goes from here. But if that, you know, didn't captivate you and you were still awake wanting to watch more tennis to get your fix, I promise you enjoyed that Maria Sakkari bianca Andreescu match because it was another three-set battle between the two. They've now played you know, twice this season, twice in their career between the two matches. There have been four tiebreakers played, six total sets. 
It's a really fun emerging rivalry in the women's game for Maria Sakkari. She's able to knock off Anne's rescue in three sets, turn that match into a marathon, you know, fitness-centric sort of match, and positions herself now into another Grand Slam quarterfinal where only one Grand Slam singles champion remains. Barbara Krejcikova is the last player in the women's singles draw to have won a single slam. That feels relevant. That feels like a perfect encapsulation, encapsulation, excuse me, of where we are right now in the women's game, of course, on the men's side. I talk about it each and every day. We talked about it in the build-up to this tournament. A new hierarchy is, has emerged, and of course, Medvedev booked his spots in the quarterfinal yesterday. There were four guys who made the fourth round at all four slams in the 2021 season. It was Djokovic, Zverev, Berrettini, and Medvedev, the first three on that list, all advancing to the quarterfinals in New York on day eight. I want to talk about their results, talk about peaking Karolina Pliskova's, peaking Belinda Bencic is where we stand entering the quarterfinals, a little bit of a preview of day eight's matches and so much more. Have a fantastic show planned, as always, for all of you listeners. Of course, before we get into that, I do want to remind all of you that the reason we're able to do this day in, day out is because of the commitment we've seen from all of you sincerely we're always flattered i know i said this when our podcast numbers get a boost during a grand slam we know the majority of grand slam uh tennis fans are most locked in during this part of the calendar but of course we know our mini break fans they're the hardcore listeners they want to know what's happening day in day out on tour and so we want to provide that information for all of you listeners we want to provide the sort of coverage we know you've long deserved you keep tuning in it means the world for us it gives us that inspiration to record these podcasts at 3 freaking a.m. So, you know, again, a huge thank you to all of you listeners. A huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. And I know some of you have recently joined our Patreon family, including the newest member, Jay Samuels, who has joined us here now. We are so grateful for his contributions for all of our Crack Rackets patrons, who, of course, we treat to a little bit of bonus coverage throughout the U.S. Open. They get a match of the day segment as well, 15 to 25 minutes of me breaking down my favorite matchup on any given day. If that interests you, you can go sign up by finding all that information on our website, crackrackets.com. Again, a shout out to Jay Samuels, who you know, seems like a really good guy to me. He's making good life decisions if he's becoming a member of our Crack Rackets Patreon family. But a thank you to him. A thank you to all of our Crack Rackets patrons. And of course, a huge thank you to our friends over at Tennis Point. I've been long-winded here on this intro, so I'll be brief. Best equipment, best prices, tennis-point.com. You use the promo code CR15, you'll get some pretty cool shit mixed in there as well, and you'll also let them know we sent you there. So again, tennis-point.com, the symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, though, let's get into day eight of the 2021 U.S. Open. You know, we I don't want to say I avoid the big names, but Usually in the first week of Grand Slam, what sort of analysis can I offer you on a Novak Djokovic match, on a Rafael Nadal match, on a Roger Federer match? And I suppose in the later halves of their career, it is a more valuable data point because we just don't get to see them play that often week in, week out on tour, in particular for Federer matches. It does feel like every match he plays, it's a valuable data point to figure out where his level is at. But you know, we haven't talked much Novak Djokovic yet during this 2021 U.S. Open uh, on this show, despite the fact that Djokovic is pursuing history. 
here at this Grand Slam, and you're all aware of it. That's why we don't bring it up, that he is now three victories away from becoming the first man since Rod Laver in the late 60s to capture the uh, the calendar slam, winning all four major titles in the same season. Of course, he has won four consecutive majors before, and that's perhaps why there's a little bit less shine on this Nole slam, because he's done the Nole slam before. We've seen him through the 2016 French Open, or started 2015 Wimbledon through the 2016 French Open win, uh, what was it, I guess, four consecutive majors. And, you know, again, the other history he's pursuing here that gets lost in that chase, this would give him the lead. This would be Grand Slam title number 21, the definitive edge for now over Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. And, you know, I'm not going to relitigate where all the numbers are right now in their careers. Who's the greatest? Who's the GOAT? I will, as always, recommend the best in the business at covering that beat. My friend Gil Gross, his show, Three, a tennis show, uh, does a really good job of covering their movements day in, day out. And every podcast covers their movements day in, day out. So, again, I often don't think there's a lot of value added to talking about first-week Djokovic. A, because first-week Djokovic is finding his range, finding his rhythm. He lost a first-round set to Jack Draper at Wimbledon, didn't lose another set until the Wimbledon final. And he finds his rhythm. That's, you know, what the great players do. They measure themselves throughout the course of the two weeks so that they're peaking come the most important rounds. And for Djokovic, and I know I'm looking past the Brooksby round here, and we'll talk about that match momentarily, but, you know, next up, Berrettini. After that would probably be Alex Virev. After that will probably be Daniil Medvedev. That is a gauntlet on your way to a fourth Grand Slam title in 2021, on your way to your 21st major. So now we're locking in. And that's, I suppose, I don't want to say a warning, but a public service announcement to all of you listeners. There will be a lot of Djokovic coverage on this show moving forward because we have to talk about Novak, his story, his level. This is unequivocally the biggest storyline in tennis right now. And you know what reminded us of that fact? His match with Jensen Brooksby here on day eight because... All of the sudden, Novak found himself down 6-1. And look, let's, I don't have to reintroduce Jensen Brooksby to you listeners. You all are well aware of what the 20-year-old has accomplished this season. He's now 41-10 and 10 overall on the year. He's 11-5 and 5 in ATP matches, made the final in Newport on the grass, made the semifinal at the City Open ATP 500-level event where he beat Tiafo. He beat FAA, who's still alive in this tournament. And then, you know, comes here, plays 11 hours, 50 minutes of tennis in the buildup to this Novak Djokovic match. And yes, Jensen Brooksby got to play a couple of slams in the past. He got to play Roland Garros this year after qualifying for the event, loses first round of Karatsev. He also got to, you know, qualified for US Open 2019, won a match there, got to main draw wildcard 2018 because he was the Kalamazoo champion. But you look in Jensen Brooksby's career and across his career, across levels, he is, you know, 86 and 43. That's outstanding. You look for him overall in his career, he had never played a top 10 opponent before facing Novak Djokovic. You look, according to the rankings, the highest ranked player he had ever faced was Felix Ogier Aliassime. Of course, you got to look at Yannick Sinner, who knocked him off at the City Open as well. 
I guess he played, you know, he got looks at Fritz and Emer and a couple of good matches in the build-up to this Karatsev again, but he had not faced a top 10 opponent, let alone the Djokovic gauntlet. And we all know the physicality Novak Djokovic brings to every match he plays, the precision he plays with, the depth of every ground stroke, the fact that if you make a mistake, he will immediately punish you. The fact that 99 out of 100 matches against Novak Djokovic are going to end up as track meets, unless you are that 1%, the Isners of the world who just no matter who you are, you're not playing track meets. Um, And yet, Brooks becomes out absolutely firing. There was not a hint of fatigue in his in his body language, in his actions on court. And the fatigue did come later, and we'll get there. But you look for Jensen Brooks being set number one. What what do you want to do when you're playing the world number one, when you're trying to accomplish an upset, when you're on center court? You want to give them, A, early reasons to have your back. B, you want to make as many freaking first serves as you can. And for Jensen Brooksby, that's never been a problem because, of course, you look for Brooksby here uh, in this 2021 season. I mentioned again, 41 and 10. He's made 67% uh, of his first serve points. He's a machine. And as, as, talented as he is as a returner, as many balls as he puts in play, what's been so impressive for him at the ATP level this season is actually the success with which he's held serve. You look for him overall on the year. Uh, He's held serve at an 84.8% clip in tour level matches. And, you know, his break percentage actually dips from 32.3 overall in the season to 22.5 in those matches. But Again, it's high percentage tennis. He just he starts the point off at worst at neutral in his service games. And playing Jensen Brooksby as neutral is not where you want to be because guess what? He's not going to beat himself. Jensen Brooksby in a first set against Novak Djokovic, one unforced error. What do you want to do with, against Novak, especially if you're a young player trying to make an upset? A, make a high percentage of your first serves. He makes 83% of them. B, don't beat yourself. Don't overpress. Don't force things. And that's never Jensen Brooksby's game, but he stayed within himself. You know, only one unforced errors. What's the other thing you got to do? You got to fight like hell. And what does Jensen Brooksby do in this first set? Covers 101.1 feet per court. He sprinted, you know, again, 4,043 uh, feet in first in that first set. Essentially a mile sprint was that first set. And that's what tennis is. When you hear that distance, you're thinking to yourself, wait, he only covered 4,043 feet in that first set. That's less than the 5,280 feet that are in a mile. Okay, you go out there right now, do a mile of sprints, while trying to swing and hit forehands and hit backhands and then realize while you're swinging that across the net from you is Novak freaking Djokovic. You're averaging 101.1 feet per point. That's one of the higher numbers we've discussed here this week. Brooksby was just ready to suffer. He was ready for the fight. And let's be honest, Novak Djokovic was not. Yes, Djokovic made 75% of his first serves, but he was 8 of 16 on service points in the set. He only created one break point for himself, 8 winners against 11 unforced errors. And it's not like Brooksby, who they keep saying is 6-4. I've stood next to Jensen Brooksby. He's a big guy. Is he 6-4? Are we sure about that? Like, if he's 6-4, then Chris Paul's 6-2. That's what I'm saying. I'd like, I would give Brooksby 6-3 because he's taller than me. But not by much. I feel like six, I don't know. Like, 
if I think of Fritz, who I think is listed at 6'4", but I think he's 6'5", 6'... Anyways, the point being, when you think about Jensen Brooksby, despite that size, he's not a guy who fire serves at 125, 130, and you look at his serving stats in this match for Jensen Brooksby, average first serve speed was 107 miles per hour. You know, his average, uh, his top first serve speed was 115. Djokovic's average first serve speed was 118, and yet... Djokovic was struggling throughout that first set because, quite frankly, he just didn't know what to do. Brooksby wasn't giving him any errors. Brooksby moves the ball around the court extraordinarily well, and what continues to be the most effective part of Jensen Brooksby's game, he might have the best hands in tennis. And I don't say that lightly. I know the volleys are hideous. I understand the two-handed backhand slice. It's not winning the booby prize for most aesthetically pleasing on the ATP Tour, but it's certainly effective, the depth he gets on that ball, how it just chops down to nothing. And the fact that if he gets his paws and makes contact on the ball, it's going where he wants it to go. It manifests itself when he gets stretched in the outer thirds and fires up the sky-high bump lobs that seem to always just land down on the baseline, or the fact that that slice somehow goes in, the fact that that forehand, which really is a slingshot, and it feels hitchy, and yet he always makes contact with it correctly. He can flatten it out. He can slingshot at short angle cross-court. He can drive through the backhand both down the line and cross-court. He just puts the ball in a lot of different places, and again, the movement for him. Does Jensen Brooksby scream explosive? No, but eight winners against 11 unforced errors. He is. Like, his his combination of anticipation, I think he's actually got a sneaky, really good first step, and that's where that length for him, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", starts to come in, where he just he gets a long stride on that first step, and because he anticipates so well, the combination of a strong anticipation and a strong first step, you're just going to cover the court well, and he just has a court sense about him. I had a coach in the college realms, and it wasn't Michael Woodson. I, I'm not going to name the coach that was texting me, because that's you don't give up your sources. I will say it wasn't Michael Woodson because you're just going to say, oh, the Baylor coaches were probably texting you this. No, it wasn't him. It was a separate coach, completely independent of the Baylor program, who said this is Djokovic-esque. Djokovic is looking across the court and he's seeing himself. And I don't think that's extraordinarily hyperbolic. Now, there are some things physically, mechanically, that you do wonder, does Brooksby have it in him the way a young Djokovic who, you know, by the time he was 21, what was that, 2008 Australian Open that he won the title, or 2009? The point being, if it was 2009, he's still 21 years old. If it, Yeah, I think it was 2009, because that would have been when he was 21 years old. The point being, Brooksby's not there, but you see the way he comp- he he won that first set just shocked Djokovic. No one shocks Novak Djokovic. This 20-year-old kid from Sacramento shocked Novak Djokovic just by not giving Novak anything for free, by being willing to suffer, by, again, making the match physical and saying, I bet I can match you point for point. And, you know, from from, I suppose, Novak's perspective, it woke the sleeping dragon. Oh my goodness, did Novak Djokovic, there was a look in his eye, there was a fire he was playing with, the anger he directed towards his box, which is when you know Novak is locked in. And of course, the crowd played a monumental role in this match, and I've seen the tweet out there, I hate repeating other people's thoughts, because I try to offer you some original uh, commentary here on this show, but... The crowd has been a massive MVP. There's no denying that about the action in New York. They've just been engaged. 
in every match that's been played, even if the match is at 1 a.m., particularly if it's an American that late. But last night in Sakari Bianca, there was Bianca, Bianca, and Sakari. Sa- like, and this is 2 a.m. chance. And this New York crowd, I just think, is so happy to not, you know, A, all of us so happy to have events like that in our lives, be able to go in public, enjoy other people, enjoy an atmosphere like that. But B, they've just engaged in the tennis. They've been extraordinary, and they had Brooksby's back, electric. And, of course, Jensen Brooksby provides you the electric moments. I've said it repeatedly He's the most entertaining watch right now, the most captivating watch on the ATP Tour because you just still, you know, you watch it set after set and it felt like Djokovic, the sleeping dragon, was emerged. He immediately breaks Brooksby to start set number two. They then play, what was it, that 16-minute service game where Brooksby ends up holding, I think, or maybe breaking back for, I think it was a break back for 2-3 in the set. You just because you don't know how he does it, but he just you know those limbs just end up tracking down that ball that that wrist snaps out and he makes the shot and he stays alive in the competition. Now ultimately, once Djokovic locked in, hit that higher physical plane that only Novak Djokovic can hit. Brooksby didn't have the weapons to hurt him, and I mentioned that fact. He won 75% of his first serve points in set number one. That number goes to 52% in set two, 61% in set three, 60% in set number four. You look at the second serve numbers, though, for Brooksby, which were, you know, for the match, Jensen Brooksby made 74% of his first serves, but he's 11 of 28 on second serve points and you know again he faces 11 break uh he faces excuse me 12 break points within the match gets broken six times now the flip side is that Jensen Brooksby had success against Djokovic as a server and Djokovic and Medvedev are the only two guys right now who are top 10 in both hold and break percentage and Brooksby had no problem with the plus one tennis of of Djokovic because he's just able to get that return and this gets back to the hands you know deep and start the point at neutral and if you leave him something short, he is occasionally going to step up and slingshot one with his forehand down the line or take that backhand early and just take time away from you. Now, you look for Brooksby, 12 of 20 at the net. It did feel like, it does feel like if he can learn that component because of how well he opens up angles and open up space, if he can learn to sneak in behind some of those cross court angles he creates and just put that first volley in the open court, that's the next level for Jensen Brooksby. And that's something Novak Djokovic identified as the match went on and he was able to do. And you look for him in set number one, four of nine at the net in that set. He goes nine of 13 in set two, 11 of 13 in set three. Five of sit, uh, six in set four. And, you know, I, it is worth noting after that second set in particular, Brooksby kind of looks to his box and says, I think I'm out of juice. Like, I'm, I got nothing left in the legs. And, you know, the trainer had come out. His hip was bothering him. And he had played 12 hours of freaking tennis in the buildup to this match. So you can understand why there might be a little bit of pain right now for Jensen Brooksby. At the same time, he just went three hours with the beast, with the dragon. And he withstood the test. He didn't get eaten. He didn't get eaten alive. He won that first set 6-1. He shocked the world. You saw Google uh, searches for his name spike over 125%. It was monumental 
for Jensen Brooksby, this data point, this moment for him in his experience. And again, you look for him now overall on the season, 40, uh, I believe, 1 and 10 in his last 52 weeks. You look for him now uh, at the ATP level. Again, 11 and 5 with an ATP final, with an ATP semifinal, and now with a fourth round at a slam. Jensen Brooksby was number 99 in the rankings entering the week. You look for him. Brooksby now all the way up, much more appropriately ranked. Number 80 now in the live rankings, which still feels a little bit low. You look for Brooksby in the race this season. He's 41st in terms of points accumulated. You look at the ELO ratings. They've always loved him, but Brooksby now, in terms of his overall ELO, again, was 29th entering this event, was 25th in 2021 ELO, and uh, leaving the event, you look at his numbers uh, for the season, that 81% number would be a top 25 in hold percentage sort of number. You look at his return percentage, he would be fourth behind just Schwartzman, Djokovic, Nadal. Now, of course, you got to adjust for competition, but we just adjusted for competition, and we saw the way he was able to compete against Novak Djokovic. One of the lessons we learned in 2021, Jensen Brooksby is a top 50 player on hard courts. Now, we just need more of a sample size to learn about the other surfaces, but the way he competes is going to translate everywhere. His high percentage tennis works, and he played a phenomenal match. Now, quickly to put a bow on this, because I promise I'm not going to spend 15 minutes on a single... Well, I'm, I actually think I am about to spend 15 minutes on a single match, but I won't do it for every match. This was the wake-up call for Djokovic, and you look at the way his just, again, mentally, how the way he locked in in sets two, three, and four, the way his percentages started to increase, his, you know, in set number two, 14 winners against 16 unforced errors. Brooksby pushed him, but he was still able to create more chances to attack, and you look at his first serve, you know, I mentioned it, eight of 16 in set number one, just on service points in general. He goes 27 of 43 in set number two, 74% win percentage on the first serves, 50% on the second serve, fights off five of the six break points he faces set number three very similar percentages first set uh, first serve percentages improved to 70 percent the winner to unforced error ratio for the first time in the positives 13 winners against 10 unforced errors same deal set number four he saw the finish line he got there 11 of 12 on first serve points 16 of 19 on service points overall 10 winners against four unforced errors he buckled down he said okay oh your game plan is will is a willingness to suffer that's what you do best Jensen, you have to understand I redefined what it means to suffer on a heart on a tennis court in the men's game. And, you know, Brooksby is still uh, Djokovic, excuse me, is still better at that game than Brooksby is. But this is the perfect, perfect match for Novak Djokovic entering week two, because this is the wake up call. And he got pushed without being tested over the brink. He lost a first set. But after, and you know, it was a relatively quick first set by Djokovic standards. But after losing that first set, locked in physically, his opponent didn't wither either. His opponent rose to the occasion, continued to test him. Now the weapons, you know, the serves of Berrettini's Virev and Medvedev are another level than Jensen Brooksby. But this was the first sort of physical challenge that he'd see in a Medvedev match, in a Zverev match. Now, obviously, the pace that all three of those players in particular, you know, Berrettini and Zverev from the baseline, play with a little bit harder than Jensen Brooksby. But this was the match to work out all the aches, work out all the kinks, and just kind of, you know, excuse me, do um, do what you're able to do here uh, and, and find your level moving forward at this U.S. Open. And so... 
I do think for Novak Djokovic, this was a really, really good test for him. And ultimately, you know, a test he passed. He makes 63% of his first serve, 73% of those first serve points he wins, 54% on the second serve, 6 of 12 on break point chances, fought off 8 of the 11 he faced, 45 winners against 41 unforced errors. He was covering over 100 feet per point as well. And, you know, again, in that first set, set and a half, it did feel like he was conserving energy in the buildup to sets three and four where he just reminded all of us no 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 no. as good as this 20 year old kid is I'm a man I'm a grown man I'm a man pursuing history here this week let me all remind you why you look for Djokovic now here with this victory in the 2021 season he's continued what has just been a ridiculous year uh, by anyone's standards but of course you look for him overall here now he's 42 and 5 so just rip it off another 90% win percentage season no big deal he's obviously got the chance to win the calendar slams and you know, again, he's slowly found his rhythm here. Now, he's dropped sets in three of four matches, but has he truly been tested to the brink Have at any th- point in any of Djokovic's matches? Have you thought, oh, man, he might lose today? Maybe after that first set of Jensen Brooksby, and I think that's a testament to Brooksby at his performance in that opening set. But again, Djokovic, five, uh, excuse me, four-set victory. He advances to another U.S. Open quarterfinal. That was night match number one, and I know that's a long open, but we haven't talked much Djokovic, and always nice to talk about our main man, Jensen Brooksby, who, of course, again, a fantastic U.S. Open for him. Uh, But let's move now to the women's side, and, you know, again, speaking of the youth movement, I think we have to talk about Emma MF and Raducanu. I mean, this 18-year-old, I just... A, she's taken all my money on our GSP Ace of the Day segment, and that's on me for doubting her because she has been simply phenomenal. And you look for Raducanu, she's yet to drop a set, folks, on her way to her first Grand Slam quarterfinal. Another straight set victory for her, this time 6-2-6-1 over Shelby Rogers. And this was the first match I locked in. I said, I'm watching this one from start to finish. I need to see what does Raducanu do best? What does she not do well? What are the vulnerabilities in her game? Are there any vulnerabilities in her game because when you rip through a draw the way she has and again seven victories for her here to get to this quarterfinal because not only you know did she win her four main draw matches in straight sets seven straight set wins for her including the three in qualifying she's now 20 and 6 77 percent win percentage in her matches this season very very brooksby-esque in the success Raducanu has had. And, you know, you look for her against Shelby Rogers. What I think was so impressive is it did look like in the first two games, Shelby's pace was going to give her problems. When, you know, on the second serve returns in that first game that Shelby was able to break, and it was a long game that went to multiple deuces, but whenever Shelby got a clean look and a clean hit on the return of serve, the pace gave Raducanu problems, and Raducanu wasn't able to step up and take the ball early on the rise like she has in her first in her uh, six prior wins. And you know Shelby's serve was getting into the body, and Raducanu was spraying a bit on her returns in that first game. And you thought to yourself, "Oh man, like maybe this is the wake up call. Maybe the fact that the 18 year old hasn't seen the pace of someone like Shelby Rogers frequently, maybe that gives her problems." And then she rips off 12 of the next 13 games and makes me look really, really foolish once again for doubting her. And you look at the stats in this match for Emirata Kanu, another very Brooksby-esque, uh, very Brooksby-esque 
She makes 76% of her first serve. She wins 64% of her first serve points, 50% of her second serve points, 7 of 7 at the net. That doesn't include the swinging volley she hit. 18 winners against 14 unforced errors. And what she does to, for me, you know, so impressively, is just the way she takes that ball early on the rise. And Radikainu, exceptional athlete. I mean, the fluidity in the outer thirds. It's like if, if Benchich was a little bit more fluid. Like, honest to God, that's that's what Radikainu has looked like against this level of competition. Now, I still want to see her play top 15, top 20, top 25 pace, who are a little bit more consistent than Shelby Rogers because Shelby did have the errors start to pile up for her throughout the course of this match and you could tell her legs a little bit drained she just pulled off a marathon 7-6 in the third victory over Ashley Barty and you're sure for Shelby Rogers you know again this is a data point okay so that's what that sort of victory drains from my body here's how I need to recover to do better moving forward but why did Shelby commit 29 unforced errors? Because she was constantly under pressure by Raducanu, who was taking every serve early. Whether, you know, for Shelby, she made 78% of her first serves, and there wasn't the usual juice down the home stretch on that first serve that Shelby Rogers can provide when she's playing her best, freshest tennis. But Shelby Rogers in the match. 16 of 41 on service points. Let me say that again. 16 of 41 on service points. Yeah, Raducanu won 61% of her return points. She she dominated this match. She was, again, her ability to take the ball early on the rise, her contact points, such a pure ball striker. And then there were times when she did show off hands at the net. And her, you know, again, her fluidity, her first step, her movement, I just... It's crazy to think because you look for Emma Raducanu, who was, uh, you know, I suppose technically still is, given that she's 18 years old, although turns 19 in November. But look, she was a really good junior. There's no doubt about that. You look for Raducanu, which she was able to accomplish uh, during her time on the ITF circuit as a junior. The 18-year-old did reach a career-high ranking in the ITF circuit of number 20. You look at what she was able to do uh, in the big events. You know, she lost her first-round match, actually, 2019 junior Wimbledon 2019 junior Australian Open but she was a quarter finalist at the 2018 US Open juniors uh, I believe quarter finalist at the 2018 Wimbledon juniors as well you know again 2018 for uh, Emma Raducanu that was what three years ago so how old does that make Raducanu when she's playing the match you look for her at that time Raducanu would have been in 2018 yeah 16 turned 16 years old at the end of the season so she had those quarterfinals at the slam results at 15 years old when you're doing that you're a special special talent and it's very, very clear that Radikainu is one of those talents. Just athletically, she's able to do things the rest of us aren't able to do. And she's got the consistency to grind with you. But then if you leave something short or you give her the topspin to flatten out the ball, she will flatten out the ball, take that forehand on the rise, take that backhand down the line. I, there's nothing to say but to continue to be impressed by her performance. And again, you look for Raducanu. It's not just here at the U.S. Open. That's what I want to keep reminding people. Finals of a 125K in Chicago and the buildup to this event before coming through qualifying. And, you know, quarterfinals for her at a couple of 100Ks. Obviously, back-to-back round of 16s in her first two Grand Slams. 
I don't know. We, we'll never quantify exactly the it factor that allows young stars to become stars, but Emma Raducanu's got it. She cracks the top 100 with the first time for this victory, up to number 74 in the live rankings. You look for her in terms of the points race. Raducanu, despite playing fewer than 30 matches, 56th in terms of total points accumulated. We'll be hearing that name quite a bit over the next year, and of course, for British tennis, who is always, you know, British tennis has meant so much to the history of the game. They're always looking for that superstar at the top. They really don't have one uh, right now. And so, look, there's going to be a lot of attention given to Emma Raducanu, justifiably so. Her results dictate she has earned it. This sort of result, uh, this sort of, you know, three-month stretch, it just doesn't happen very frequently. We saw it with a Brooksby. We saw it with Accorda. You know, we see it with the Goffs of the world. Now we're seeing it with Emma Raducanu. Super, super special victory for her. Again, dominate Shelby Rogers, 6-2-6-1, uh, to advance to her first quarterfinals. And by the way, credit to Shelby. Like, yeah, it wasn't her best performance in that final match, but to get the win that she did over Ashley Barty to make that consecutive round of 16s at the U.S. Open. She's 44th in the rankings, has solidified herself, entering her age 29 season to the point where she can get into any event she wants. And guess what? When you are an established veteran, that's the sort of comfort that you crave. And she has that comfort. She's earned it. So she, again, yes, gonna, you know, disappointing ending to what was a fantastic campaign for her in New York, but she ran into the Raducanu buzzsaw, and sometimes that happens. We see the 18-year-old breakthrough performance for her here. And by the way, just a fun fact for all of you, Vita, at ATP Media Info, the U.S. Open has a teenager in both the men's and women's quarterfinals for the first time since 2001. You look at those quarterfinalists, Alcaraz for the men, Fernandez and Raducanu for the women. The last time this happened, 2001, it was Andy Roddick, 19 years old at the time for the men. It was Serena Williams, Kim Kleischers, and Daya Bendanova uh, doing it on the women's side. So again, we talk generational shifts every podcast, 2001, 2021. Some things are changing, folks. There's a new wave of players coming. Let's certainly all get excited about that fact. But again, that was one of your exciting women's matches on the day from a results standpoint. The only match that went three sets was the thriller that has us up here till 3.30 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning on the East Coast, a match that finished after 2 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, the matchup between Bianca Andreescu and Maria Sakari. It was Sakari getting a little revenge after she was knocked out by the 2019 U.S. Open champion in Miami, or, Miami earlier this season. She also fought things off the brink. Uh, you know, she was down uh, in that second set. Looked like she was about uh, to, you know, get broken and that BB was going to have the chance to serve to advance in the match. And, you know, Sakari survived, ultimately getting through that second set, making this battle a physical, just marathon sort of match, making this match a track meet. And ultimately, Sakari earns a 6 7 7 6 6 3 win to advance uh, to the U.S. Open quarterfinals. You look for Maria Sakari, and this is a fact we've highlighted here before on this show. Six 
consecutive seasons of improvement on serve. Her hold percentage has increased in each year since she became, you know, full-time tour event player in 2016. You look at it, it's gone from 58.3% in 2016 to 71.2% now. For those of you curious, that 71.2% is currently good. I believe for 19th amongst the top 20, uh, top 50 WTA players in terms of hold percentage, you look at the break percentage from Sakari, it's also improved. Now, it started out a little higher, 33.9, but she's at a career high, 41.7%. Her first serve win percentage has improved in each season as well. She goes from 59.2 six years ago to 68.4 now. You look at her total service points one, uh, again, and total return points one, total points one in general. They all continue to improve. Now, she hasn't been elite in any category until arguably this season you look for Maria Sakari now she currently ranks ninth in terms of break percentage top 10 I mean that's an elite number uh certainly so I would say that when you're top 10 in something you're probably elite on it in the women's tour but uh in the women's game but you know prior to this season she hadn't had an elite trait and yet she had always had such a well-rounded skill set and you know when I talk about this match being a track meet you could argue that the fittest player in the women's game. There's some other in the discussion. Certainly, Simona Halep would like to talk to you. Sarah Cerebus Tormo would love a cup of coffee. Honestly, Inka Sviantek, pretty damn fit as well for a 20-year-old Coco Goff. Ditto, but you could argue combination of strength, speed, and and uh, longevity. Maria Sakari checks off all three boxes. And, you know, again, I think that those stats, that continued improvement in her numbers are a testament and a manifestation of her immense work ethic. And, you know, coming into the match, it was very similar to Krejcikova. And I, I said this, you know, before in the pre-match interview, there was just a look to Sakari, a seriousness where she had prepared her whole life for this match, this stage, this was the one. Not, oh, if I advance, I get to the quarterfinals, then I, you know, play this, and then after that, I'd get to the semifinals. It was, no, 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 no. I am locked in on this match. She said it. I was, re- I was ready to play five hours. I was ready to play as many sets, as many tiebreakers as it takes to get over the finish line here. And that's what she needed to do, that sort of enduring mentality of being willing to suffer because she suffered at different points of this match courtesy of the level of Bianca Andrescu. And you look for Andrescu in this match, she makes 70% of her first serves, 80% in set number one. She was 26 of 33 on first serve points in the opening set, 6 of 9 at the net, 16 winners against 16 unforced errors, was broken once uh, in two breakpoint chances, created five breakpoints for herself, only was able to convert one. And that's where the credit to Sakari comes because even to get that that first set to a tiebreaker when Andrescu was up an early break. She broke Sakari right out of the gate, and it felt like Andrescu was in control from there. But Maria Sakari keeps scrapping, and her ability to absorb, redirect pace, you know, her ability to scrap in the outer thirds, and because of her strength, still put pace on that shot when she is forced to hit in those defensive positions of the of the court, of course. You know, you look for her 17 winners against 15 unforced errors in set number one, a 71% win percentage on the first serve. She's also developed a plus one game that I'm not going to say matched Andrescu because Andrescu's plus one forehand when she was playing first strike, front foot, able to move forward. She still had 
you know, the bigger weapons than Sakari, but Sakari has a legit plus one game now. You know, her ability to find that plus one forehand, drive through an approach shot on the backhand side, drive through that ball cross court, just her strength, it manifests itself in a bunch of different ways in her game. And so I thought Sakari was playing really, really well in set number one just to get to the first set, but credit to Bibi, who came out locked in physically and just her movement her her, you know I thought she returned a lot better in that first set as well and you know she held Sakari to 8 of 20 on second serve points she did create five break point chances to Sakari's two 16 winners against 16 unforced errors Andreski was locked in and in that tiebreaker it manifested itself she was able to connect with a couple of returns and you know for Sakari the, the one place where her strength doesn't manifest itself probably is on that second serve, uh, is on the second serve. Her second serve still hangs a little bit and just can't hang second serves against Bianca Andreescu because she's going to make you pay for it. Uh, but credit to her for doing the exact same back to Andreescu, for forcing Andreescu to be stretched throughout the course of this match on her second serve points. And you look overall for Andreescu. She made 70% of her first serves in the match, but, uh, you know, 15 of 36 on second serve points. And by the end, that first serve had lost. Uh, well, actually, she just kept swinging down the home stretch, even when, you know, again, for Bianca Andreescu, she had this match in straight sets. Like, let's be clear. She was playing well enough to win this match in straights. And it felt like, you know, you look in set number two at the numbers between the two players, Andreescu, two of five on breakpoint chances, Sakari and efficient two of two. Those chances came at the end of the set. You know, when Sakari was serving down the home stretch, five all and, you know, four all, it felt like Andreescu had her chances, made her returns, was down early 40-15s, but seemed to always find a way to get those Sakari service games back to deuce and just, you know, back and forth and back and forth. She'd make a big return deep at the feet, get to play plus one tennis, but then here'd come a plus one forehand from Sakari or here would come a long physical point where she scraps down an extra shot, manages to put that ball back in play and you know Andrescu came out and played a shaky start to the tiebreaker goes down 6-3 to Sakari but then manages to work her way back a double fault from Sakari a big return uh, a couple big returns from Andrescu six all at the turn all of a sudden you think to yourself okay Andrescu's gonna escape this one in straights and there may or may not be a tweet in my drafts congratulating Bianca Andreescu on a 7-6-7-6 victory over Maria Sakkari. But Maria Sakkari had other plans. And, you know, the moment she wins that set, for the second set, 8-6 in the breaker, lets out a roar. And you could just tell, you know, she she was sweating, but she just was like, no, let's do this again. I'm ready for another two hours. I'm ready for another three hours. I'm ready for another four hours. I just wanted to stay on court. I've managed to do that. Let's roll. Meanwhile, on the flip side, you could tell for Andreescu, the struggles were starting to begin. And you could just tell, you know, again, she comes out strong in that third set, gets a break right away, runs out to a two-love lead, and you think to yourself, okay, she's going to need that. Can she hold serve the rest of the way? Can she find four more holds in this match? The answer was no. Sakuri breaks her right back for 2-1, and from there, you know, again, wins six out of the last seven games in the match and just... You know, it's unfortunate because Andrescu does have to go get taped and her thigh was bothering her. And of course, injuries have been such an issue for her. So we hope she's healthy. We hope it's a minor injury. And it's just, you know, the fact that she played four high stress matches in a, you know, seven, eight day span. That's what is causing the injury and fatigue more than an actual structural problem. But there was not a hint of fatigue 
in the body language, in the performance of Maria Sakkari. And that match played at 4 p.m. would have been exceptional. But to play that level at 1.32 a.m., it's laughably excellent laughably excellent just how good both of these players were down the home stretch and even for Andrescu who almost held 4-4-5 to force Sakari to serve it out and just kept swinging freely and trying to put pressure trying to fight uh throughout the match but man Maria Sakari can freaking play she stops another streak this tweet from Alex McPherson the the streak Sakari has ended she ended Osaka's 23 match winning streak in Miami she ended Fiontech's 11 match Roland Garros winning streak she's now ended Andrescu's 10 match U.S. Open winning streak you look for Maria Sakari with this victory up to a new career high of number 14 in the live rankings you look for her in the race to the year-end finals Maria Sakari eighth right now eighth in the year-end finals. She's been a top-end eight player in the points race this season. Obviously, you look for semi uh, quarterfinals now for her at the French Open, quarterfinals for her, uh, obviously, here at the, US, uh, French, yeah, at the U.S. Open as well. Second-round loss for her at Wimbledon was disappointing. The first-round loss in Australia coming off of that Abu Dhabi semifinal, disappointing as well, but unequivocally a step forward. The numbers say it. The rankings say it. The accomplishments say it. She's 26 years old. She's entering the prime of her career, and she's going to be a factor in every tournament that she plays. Just too fit, too diverse a game, such a tough out. She earns an impressive three-set victory over defending 20, uh, 2019 U.S. Open champ. The reason I said defending is Andrescu was defending 2,000 points. And look, she managed to salvage her place. She only dropped 13 spots in the ranking to 20th, but she is now 20th in the rankings, and she's still got an Indian Wells title to defend later this fall. Again, 20th is good, stops the bleeding. Your 20th, yes, it's not 7th. Yes, your draws get a little bit tougher, but she does still get in to every tournament that she play, it wants to play. And that's the key for Andrescu, just getting into the door. Because once she's on the dance floor, you know, no one can dance it up. Quite like Bianca Andrescu, but again, the story of this one, Maria Sakri, she looks excellent uh, in her victory over Bianca Andrescu. You know who else looked excellent? The other two seeds to advance on the women's side uh, uh, on day eight. Belinda Bencic now, I believe, 13-1 and since the start of the Olympics, and you look for Bencic, uh, today was a dramatic, you know, she was up a break early, She and it's funny, Belinda Bencic, 50th in break percentage amongst the top 50 players, 33%, she's obviously, you know, two different seasons for her, but she is a player who thrives on confidence, who's going to take big cuts, be aggressive, play to win, um, or, you know, play on her terms, and try to play the match on her rack, and she got that early break, and she was holding serve with ease against Belinda Bencic right up until 5-4 in that first set when she was serving for the set and then she blinked she you know made her fewest first serves of any game I think she only made two first serves in the game and she throws in a double fault at 30-40 and that's where you got to give credit to Iga Sviantek who just kept scrapping and clawing and absorbing first strikes and just going side to side trying to find ways to get Bencic stretched into the outer thirds and flip the script of the points to where she was the aggressor and she did a really good job of doing that in her service games again she was broken early in set number one held serve the rest of the way felt like Sviantek was going to take the lead after she took that momentum 6-5 and kind of weathered the Bencic storm because Oh my God, was Belinda Bencic good in the first set of this match. 23 winners against 15 unforced errors, 19 of 25 on first serve points, you know, 4 of 4 at the net. 
created six breakpoint chances for herself on the Iga Sviantec serve. It just felt like Benchich was holding at 15 or 30 every time. Sviantec, every service game of hers in that first set until her hold for 6-5 was going to deuce. And that's just because when Belinda Benchich is striking the ball as confidently as she is right now, and when she has an opponent in Iga Sviantec who's giving her all of the topspin in the world, because obviously that's what makes Iga special. She can hit a degree of topspin that just few others in the women's game can. Benchich was like, oh, thank you. I get a free swing on every swing. I'll take it. And just bunting down on these balls, swinging so loosely, freely, and through the, uh, her forehand wing. Ditto on the backhand, pulling the trigger down the line at will. And her anticipation skills, her on-the-run skills, it was incredible. And you look, obviously, she's able to rebound. She fights off a set point down 5-6. Uh, she was down 30-40. Big first serve plus one forehand. We were just like... What am I supposed to do there? There were a couple of, you know, set points for Iga in that 14-12 first set breaker for Benchich. And you look for for Iga for one of them. I think it was 9-8. I'm going to butcher the score. But on one of them, I think it was not either 9-8 or 10-9. It might have been 10-9 actually where she had – she has this really good inside-out forehand to open up the court for herself, moves into the net, has – all of the open court in the world for a backhand volley if she just drives the backhand volley all she has to do is stick it not you know doesn't have to be a drop volley doesn't have to be a cute angle all she has to do is stick the volley benchage isn't uh, tracking it down she's a little late on trying to stick that volley and it floats a little bit wide on her and that you know that's set point number one saved now she gets another set point chance i think it was 11 10 um, and she blasts a first serve blasts another plus one forehand inside out at the benchage backhand but Benchich anticipated it perfectly and hit a, an incredible backhand sh- like shot. Like that one's not on Iga. And maybe it is on her for being predictable with that inside-out forehand approach, which is the one she loves. And, but it's credit to Benchich still to A, to anticipate that's where she's going to go. B, to actually execute the down-the-line backhand pass to fight off a set point after you have been dominating for an entire set. And now you find yourself one bad backhand passing shot away from losing the set. It's a clutch performance from Belinda Benchich, who won four consecutive three-set matches to capture the gold medal this year. We should be used to clutch performances from the 2019 U.S. Open semifinalists who also had major points to defend here at this event. And with this result, Benchich now gets to, you know, again, salvage the ranking. You look for Belinda Benchich, she's still up, you know, number 12 in the rankings, which, by the way, was where she was entering this event. You look for Belinda Benchich now with this result in the race to the year-end finals. She's 18th, which is a little bit lower than that, but she's regained her rhythm here, winning the Olympics, quarterfinals of the Western Southern Open, now quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. She's reminded all of us, you know, Belinda Benchich is only 24 years old. I know she's been a part of our lives forever, what, eight years ago she was the world junior champion it was her and Zverev in the same season but Belinda Benchich 24 is not old and you look at the numbers now her serving metrics career high for her and hold percentage this year 72.8 percent the break percentage still you know a little bit low for her but it's starting to work his, her way back and you saw the confidence again after taking that first set seven six the big serving big hitting she continued that uh in set number two and you know it was one break of serve because again it was an early break Iga 
you know, one bad service game where she fires in, I think it was three second serves, and, you know, that was the most second serve she hit in, uh, or, you know, she looked, she was 14 of 20 in service points in the set, but I think three of the four second serve points she lost came in the game she was broken. Meanwhile, Benchich only faced one break point chance in that second set. She managed to fight it off. She was, you know, overall for the match, Benchich wins 75% of her first serves, eight of nine at the net. Two of nine on break point chances isn't great, but she did create nine. To Sviantek's only three and the key was she just held pace. She kept the power tennis, the pressure on Sviantek. Now, I actually thought this was a really good 6-3 and three loss for Iga, and I know good 6-3 and three loss, what does that mean? But for Iga, all f- fourth rounds in singles at all four slams this season. She's, you know, solidified her spot. She's currently seventh, or eighth, excuse me, in the WTA ranking. She is currently now fifth in the race to, in the points race. You look for her from an ELO rating perspective. Shriantek sixth in overall of ELO, 11th in 2021 specific results. She's the only WTA player to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Her floor is just going to be higher than every other player is moving forward, except for maybe Ashley Barty. They're going to be the all-floor team. Now, we've seen hints of what the Sviantec ceiling can be, and I think that's what makes her so dangerous, is as high as that ceiling is, her game doesn't feel as volatile as someone like an Osaka or a Sabalenka or a power-centric player. Now, she can crank up the power, crank up the topspin, but she can also grind a little bit as well. I mean, it's not it's not a novel take to say Ika Sviantec can win, you know, five, six slams over the course of the next decade. She's got that sort of talent across surfaces. And of course, she's still only 20 years old. That's the crazy part about Sviantec. But gotta credit Benchich, the 24-year-old. Just, you know, she was the more powerful player. She outclassed Sviantec on this day. To advance to the semifinals, or quarterfinals, well now, she'll have Radikainu on the other. The last women's result, Karolina Pliskova, whatever clicked for her, between, you know, the start of the grass court season, really the start of Wimbledon, um, the end of the French Open, I should say, and the start of Wimbledon, get me on that diet. Get me on that voodoo. Get me on that, you know, life coaching or whatever it is that she's doing in her routines because 19 and 4 now. And something has clicked for her on serve in particular here in New York. You look for Pliskova in this match. She won another 71% of her first serve points, fought off seven of the nine break points she faced. You know, wasn't the 20 plus ace performances we saw in the last two, but she was on her front foot. And she was, you know, again, the one dictating throughout the course of this match, constantly putting pressure on Pavlochenko who just felt the need to press, you know, Pavlochenkova, 19 winners against 34 unforced errors for Pliskova. It's a 24-24 split. I just think Carolina Pliskova is executing so well right now. She's extraordinarily confident as well. She's just playing good ball. I don't know how else to say it, folks. And so she advances now 7-5-6-4 to another U.S. Open quarterfinal. Of course, again, that's back-to-back quarterfinals for Pliskova, who, after falling out of the top 10, is now up to number 3 in the WTA rankings. Uh, you look for her in the race to the year-end finals. Carolina Pliskova now 4th. Yeah, we're still in the tail end of the Pliskova prime. And it wasn't the best start to the season, but again, 19-4 and four down the home stretch. I don't think anyone is going to complain about that. But those are your women's results to quickly finish things up here on the men's side. Alex Virov, who has been, you know, credibly accused of physical and emotional abuse of his former uh, girlfriend. If you haven't read the story, you can go read both parts. Part one in Racket Magazine, part two in Slate. Of course, that story reported and written by friend of the program here, Ben Rothenberg. Zverev, 
is playing, you know, that said, Zverev is playing well enough to win. And you look for him now, hasn't lost since the start of the Olympics. And for him yesterday, didn't even play his best. And honestly, ripped through the Yannick Sinner match. You look at that result for Zverev. He just, he dominated the proceedings. You look for him overall in the match for Alex Zverev, what he was able uh, to accomplish on serve in particular on the day in his 4-4-6 victory over Sinner. You know, he wins 73% of his first serve points, and he's making those first serves now at a 68% clip, 17 aces on the day. He fights off six of the seven break points he faced. The only time he got broken, he's up 4-3 in the second set. And, you know, A, Sinner cracked a couple of returns in that game to break Zero. There's nothing, you know, nothing Yannick, uh, nothing Zero I thought could do on those returns. But, you know, then he double faults the breakaway, and that was his first double fault of the third set. That was like the one manifestation of those nerves we grew so accustomed to seeing from Zverev but you know other than that 37 winners against 38 unforced errors uh you know three of 11 on his own break points but creates 11 break point chances and you know again he just he can match anything you want to do he could match first strike tennis with center his serve was the biggest weapon on the court when it was landing he can just crank 130 135 power with ease he had a, a 134 flat serve out wide i know you know this is really tennis nerdy so feel free to call me out if you want at great shot pod but i can't emphasize how fucking hard it is to hit a serve 134 out wide do it on the ad side do it on the do side i know he's going flat into that shot there but when you're extending across your you know going out away from your body you're just humans aren't supposed to be able to do that and he is able to do it and you see the strength when he's you know in the outer thirds and he wants to go backhand down the line he just the strength he has to drive through that shot or when he connects with a forehand and he's on his front foot and then there's the physicality he can bring, the movement in the outer thirds, the fluidity. He's gotten better at the net, and he was uh, today 10 of 15 on net points. Now, for Sinner, Sinner was really, really good in this match. And again, he was keeping pace, particularly after the physical five-set match he uh, played, or four-set. Was it four against Gael? I think it was five against Gael. It was five. Uh, particularly given that that match was his last match, it was a good bounce-back performance from him. And again, played one loose service game in both sets, two, you know, at the middle part of set one and at the end of set number two, where he had a high overhead and he just shanked it because he lost it in the sun and he missed another high volley and he missed a plus one. You know, he... He was the one who played one loose service game in set number two. Zverev did not. That was the difference. And then, you know, set number three, it goes to a breaker. And Sinner has his chance in the breaker. He, I believe, created a set point. And look, whenever he created a set point or break points, and I think he did have break. It was, no, that's when it was 5-6 in that break. 5-6 uh, in the second set, 15-40. Uh, Zverev had his, uh, Sinner had his shot, second serve return, just misses it. Uh, you know, just, you know, didn't hit it cleanly. And then on the 30-40 point, Zverev hits a bomb out wide. And guess what? When you're playing the top five players in the world, you get one chance. Sometimes you get two if you're lucky. And he had two, and he wasn't able to get either of them over the finish line, you know, to, to force a fourth set. And then, you know, again, Zverev, the complete package, did a little bit of everything. What was so scary is I don't think he played that well in this match. He played fine. He didn't play his best. Now, some of that is the pressure Sinner puts on you. And again, 
Big picture here, fourth round U.S. Open for Sinner. He holds seed as the 13 seed. He is currently, I believe, you remove Rafa from the equation. Yannick Sinner is, I want to say, eighth right now in the race to the year-end final. Excuse me, he's ninth right now in the year, race to the year-end finals. Trails Hubi Hercats by 250 points. You look for him in the rankings, uh, highest-ranked teenager right now. Yannick Sinner currently ranked, uh, I believe, new career high number 14. Oh, he just turned 20, though, so he's no longer a teenager. Alcaraz is the highest ranked teenager. The point being, Yannick Sinner, 20 years old, 14th in the world, the 10th in the race to the year-end finals. I think he's on the right track, folks. I think he's doing just fine. And again, you, you continue to look for him to develop plan B, to develop some off-speed things. I think he did in this match. I think something I really enjoyed from this match was the way he embraced the crowd and tried to get the crowd to embrace him as well. But I mean, look, Alex Virov still, I, I don't think he's played his best tennis in this event, yet he's dropped just one set on his way to another Grand Slam quarterfinal. Uh, he's the, I believe, third German. It's Rainer Schuttler, Boris Becker, and Alex Virov to make multiple quarterfinals at Grand Slams in the same season, multiple quarterfinals, I believe, at the, uh, or I think, yeah, in the same season. So, again, Zverev on court continues to make progress. Uh, in terms of your other results on the men's side on the day, Matteo Berrettini earns a tricky but needed four-set win over us. Uh, yeah, he played Oscar Oto. That match just, you know, big serving across the board. That match looked exactly like you expected it to look for uh, Berrettini in the end. He's just able, uh, you know, to to play a good, uh, find his, you know, find his first serve, play good front foot tennis. He earns that 6-4-3-6-6-3-6-2 victory. You look uh, for Berrettini uh, again on the day, what he was able to do with his first serve. He makes 61% of them, 55 of 62 on on first serve points, 21 of 25 at the net, 44 winners against 29 unforced errors. Ota kept swinging, kept trying to put pressure on Berrettini. He comes to the net 38 times, 25 of 38 on net points, 23 winners against 16 unforced errors. Again, Oscar Ota did his job, just didn't have quite enough juice to get over the finish line, didn't have quite enough options in the Berrettini service game. So ultimately, it is Matteo able to advance to, by the way, another quarterfinal. And this is three consecutive slams. We'll see the Berrettini-Djokovic matchup. That sucks for Berrettini that, you know, I mean, it doesn't suck. If you're playing Djokovic at a slam, it means you held seed. It means you did your job. Uh, now you just got to get over that finish line. That's the ultimate hump that so many players have struggled to do or failed to do over the course of their career. But of course, Berrettini, when playing his best, he's got the serve, got the weapons to at least play a little bit on his hit terms in that Djokovic match. But boy, what a contrast. Imagine going from playing Jensen Brooksby to playing Matteo Berrettini. That would be something. Uh, speaking of something, Lloyd Harris. First Grand Slam quarterfinal, you look uh, for Harris, the, uh, I believe now 24-year-old, yes, 24-year-old out of South Africa, 27-17 and 17 overall this season, 21-9 and nine, though on hard courts, and you look for him, he made that run to the finals in Dubai from qualifying, beat Shapovalov, beat Nishikori, you look for him in Canada, was a round of 16 loss, 7-6 in the third to eventual finalist Riley Opelka in D.C., you know, beat Rafa in such a fun three-set match before, bound on a really competitive 3-5 and five. 2K Nishikori in Australia this year, you know, makes the third round before losing in three sets to City Open finalist Matthew McDonald. He's just been damn good. It's been progress for him, and honestly, progress each of the last four years. You look for Lloyd Harris over uh, his career at the ATP level. 
was two and three in ATP matches in 2018. That number became 10 and 13 in 2019, 12 and 12 last year, now 24 and 17 here this season. You look for Lloyd Harris. 15-7 and seven against opponents ranked outside the top 50 this season. That's how you sustain yourself a top 50 ranking, but perhaps more impressively, 12-10 and 10 against the top 50, 7-2 against the top 20. Now, four of those top 20 wins, Monfils, Dimitrov, 7-6 in the third over Shapo, 7-5 in the third over Stan Wawrinka. Uh, you know, he's also earned another win over Chapo here at this event. He's earned a win over Dominic Team in Dubai earlier this season as well. I don't know how much validity you put into that one, the banged-up Rafa in the City Open. What I'm going to say, it's not as gaudy as that 7-2 and two number sounds, but 7-2 and two speaks for its freaking self. Lloyd Harris has been excellent this year. He took it to Opelka. He just, you know, he could match Opelka's pace on the serve, and then he was a better mover and had a more dynamic game from the baseline. And so if you could match Opelka on serve and you're better than him at the other stuff, you're probably going to win the match. And that's exactly what happened for Lloyd Harris, who now, again, advances to his first quarterfinal. You look for Harris with this result up to a new career high for the 24-year-old, number 31 in the rankings. And by the way, talk about a guy who freaking epitomizes what we talk about all the time here. 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", fluid, massive serve, Good ground strokes, though, solid base as well. Not just a one-dimensional serve bod. Can do some things throughout the course of the point. Can get to the net, be aggressive, but grind a little bit when he needs to as well. There's going to be a lot of Lloyd Harris's in the future of men's tennis. That's the way it's going because if you can be that tall and that fluid, you just have inherent advantages. I look right now in that section of the draw, uh, of the rankings. Harris 31, Bublik 34. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fitting that those two guys are next to each other. Uh, but Lloyd Harris, obviously, career result for him as he advances to the quarterfinals, where now he will face off with Alex Zverev in a match that is happening, I believe, on Wednesday. Uh, but with that in mind, I do want to look quickly at where things stand following the fourth round of action, where we're at in the quarterfinals. Just quick metrics for all of you, and then our head-to-heads on day eight before we wrap today's show. You look at the percentages via our friends at Tennis Abstract. Medvedev, your favorite, 45.4% chance. That's probably a product of the fact that there is no Zverev. There is no Djokovic on his side. No Berrettini either on his side of the draw. So he's still the prohibited, uh, not prohibited, but the favorite just by virtue. They think he's more certain to enter the final. Of course, Djokovic, 28.4. Zverev, 22.9. Then you get to FAA, 1.5. Berrettini 1.1, Alcaraz, Harris, BVDZ, all under a percent chance to win according to the analytics forecast. You look at the odds makers, same deal. Djokovic minus 120, Medvedev plus 190, Zverev plus 400. After that, drops off a cliff. Alcaraz, Berrettini uh, 28 to 1, FAA 35 to 1, Harris 65 to 1, BVDZ 200 to 1. You look on the women's side. Numbers suggest it's a toss-up, and I think that's what we would all agree as well. Now, Sabalenka is the favorite. They give her a 22% chance to win. They then go, interestingly enough, Svitolina at 19.5. The numbers also loving the recent performances of Benchich. She's third, 16.3. Pliskova, 15.4. Sakari, 12.7. Krejcikova, 12.2. They then give the youngsters a collective 1.8% chance together to win this tournament. 
Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, it's, you know, again, though, I would say the top six, we've just, the veterans, we've seen them all sniff around this level before. We haven't seen that for Fernandez and Raducanu, but from a level perspective, a lot of parity entering the home stretch. Of course, you look for the odds makers. They have Sabalenka as the favorite. They've switched around the order a little bit. Same top four goes Sabalenka, plus 240, Pliskova, plus 400, Benchich, plus 500, Svitolina, plus 500 as well. They then have Krejcikova and Raducanu, plus 700, Sakari plus 800, big dip, well, slight dip, to Fernandez, 16 to 1. But again, they view the women's race as open. They view the men's competition as a three-man race. I think that is fair to say that's where all of us are entering the quarterfinal matches. And speaking of the quarterfinals, let's get to it. Here are uh, Tuesday's matches at the quarterfinal level. Now, first-time matches on the men's side between uh, Botik van de Senschulp and Daniil Medvedev. You look for the two of them, I suppose, uh, via the tennis abstract projections here. Medvedev, a 95.5% chance to win the match. Botik, 4.5%. You look at the spread, uh, the odds, excuse me. Daniil Medvedev prohibitive favorite up to uh, minus 1,000. In fact, he's uh, I think he's off the board. No, he's still minus 1,000 uh, tomorrow, so you gotta bet, what was it? Yeah, 10, 10 bucks you gotta bet to win one in return. Uh, would not surprise me. You know, again, I, I give all my picks on the GSP Ace of the Day, so if you want to hear those picks, head there, but, you know, first time matchup between the two of them. First matchup between Alcaraz and Carlos Al- uh, Carlos Alcaraz and Felix Ogier Aliassim. That was actually our Crack Rackets Patreon match of the day. If you are interested in that, you can go check it out, of course, uh, on our website, CrackRackets.com. Become a Patreon subscriber. Uh, you look on the women's side, we have seen both of these matchups one time before. They are both relatively in the past two seasons. Svitolina taking on the youngster Layla Fernandez. Svitolina beat Layla Fernandez 6-4-7-5 when the two of them played in the Monterey quarterfinals back in uh, 2020. That was when Svitolina was struggling awfully uh, at the start of that season. Fernandez was actually making her breakthrough run in those course uh, of Mexico, uh, Mexico events. You look uh, again for Svitolina. She's yet to drop a set in this tournament coming off of a win over Simona Halep for Layla Fernandez. She's gone three sets in her past two victories over Osaka and Kerber, respectively. You look at the numbers, and by the way, it gives FAA 60.3% chance to win over Carlos Alcaraz. You look at the numbers tomorrow for the women's side. They give Elena Svitolina 76.3% favorite. Sabalenka is a 58% favorite against Barbara Krejcikova. Sabalenka beat Krejcikova three sets the one time they played. It was the Linz final indoor hard courts at the end of last season season. Of course, both of these players have been top five performers on the WTA uh, tour this season. The rankings, the advanced metrics all reflect as much. You look at those final odds, by the way, FAA minus 195 against Alcaraz, who's plus 160. You look in the women's matches, Sabalenka the favorite, minus 175 to Krejcikova's plus 145. Svitolina minus 310 to Fernandez's plus 240. So it should be a really, really fun day. On day uh, 9 of this 2021 U.S. Open, of course, Carlos Alcaraz, just the fourth player since 2005 to win an ATP title, an ATP challenger title, and reach the U.S. Open quarterfinals all in the same season. It's him, Berrettini, Wawrinka, and James Blake. That's always good company uh, to join. And, of course, in he and Botik van de Senschulp, you have your first debut U.S. Open quarterfinalist as qualifiers since 1993, uh, or a debut in their uh, quarterfinalist in their debut 
event, excuse me, forget the qualifying, since 1993. You've got Carlos Alcaraz and Botic today. They're the first to do it since Andre Medvedev did it uh, back in 93. So, again, should be a super, super fun day of action on day nine of the 2021 U.S. Open. Of course, we will be back tomorrow to recap all of it. We, of course, will be offering picks as we do each and every day on our Great Shot podcast feed. So, of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to all of our shows to ensure that you don't miss anything if you need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out, as well, to our friends over at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for super producers Fliegner and Westoff, for our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you.